Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we move into the world of prophecy and poetry with Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 5, verses 14 through 15 and 18 through 24. We situate Amos' call to hate evil and love good within his broader message of economic justice. We make ourselves the audience of this prophecy and sit with the idea that if we keep taking more than we need as we go about our daily lives, any real communion with God through worship or through ritual will be impossible. But Amos isn't asking us to sacrifice ourselves for someone else. He is asking us to have faith that someone else's thriving will benefit us too. When justice flows down like a mighty stream, all of our proverbial fields are watered. Thanks for listening. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Hey, Amy. I am doing really well. I love the fall, and so I am digging fall times. Newly energized. Yeah. That's good. There's an early part in the fall where I have a lot of sneezes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, it's pretty miserable for me, actually. Mm-hmm. And then this part of the fall is really nice. I enjoy it. Yeah, my husband and I were walking our psychotic dog yesterday. We only have psychotic dogs in my house, so I know I was like, we're referring to any dog. dog. <laughs> yeah, but it was it was so like the light had that sort of fallness about it, and there were crunchy leaves in the street. And I said something about loving fall, and my husband ruined it by pointing out the temperature and global warming. That is impacting us here in well Atlanta. Done. It's like, stop it. The leaves are crunchy and the light is pretty. It's fall. Yeah. Stop yeah. it with the global warming stuff. Stop it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are times to think about that stuff and there are times to enjoy your life. That's beautiful, Kohelet. Yeah. yeah. I'm always a little Kohelet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> little Kohelet, like a Kohelet in your pocket. Like the little app <laughs> that little, you can I sign up for that's like, you're going to die. <laughs> I do think you have I do have app? a little Kohela that rides around on my shoulder. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it would be better never yet, to Because you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, but we're not reading Kohelet today. No, we're not. I don't I think... know if we're reading anything cheerier than Kohelet. No. But, it, but, but it's beautiful poetry. <laughs> It is. And one of the things that I love about Amos, and I don't know how I got how this got started, but for some reason, for almost the whole time I've known you, I have called you Amos. That is true. And so whenever I read the book of Amos, I think about you like being really judgy. (laughs) 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 I'm just kidding. You're not judgy. Uh, I'm not as judgy as Amos, but, um, you know, I have my moments. Yes. No, that's true. You and you are the only person who calls me Amos. I have many a nickname, but... um, this one is this one's just just yours. Yeah, it's something it's something special just just for us. I don't remember how that got started, but it has been true for a very long time. Like yes, mm-hmm. like I think I, I only call you Amy 
like on the podcast <laughs> when I say I hi. Think that's Amy. true. Yeah. Maybe you should stop. Maybe you should call me Amos on the podcast yeah. also. Yeah. yeah. At I least call for you today. Amos, you might be famous. Oh, wow. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, so as you may have gathered, dear listeners, we are reading from the book of Amos today. Um, we have just a Wouldn't couple Wouldn't it be funny if we had that whole conversation and then <laughs> we are we're reading, like, and we're reading we're Ezekiel. Like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> but we're not talking about Amos today. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. sorry. I'm back. I'm ready. I'm good. I'm no, rolling. we're focused. I'm ready. We're totally, we're good. Yeah. We're good. Mm. Um, we are reading from the book of Amos. Yeah. Just a couple verses from chapter one. And then the narrative lectionary has us in chapter five, verses 14 and 15, and then verses 21 to 24. We're going to fill in some of that middle part in between. Yeah. So we'll pick up again in verse 18 and, and go to the end, 24. It's so yeah. hard to know, you know, when to add things in and when you just really need context and when we can just offer yeah. a little summary context. But that's where we came down today. Yeah, with this one, I think the the text that's in the narrative lectionary is coherent and makes sense as a text. That. 5, 18 to 20, which we're adding in there is quite an important passage, like in terms of like the development of ideas in ancient Israel and in the Bible. And so I will have to see like whether it, it adds anything <laughs> to the to the actual discussion, but it's definitely something like if you're going to talk about Amos 5 and you don't talk about 18 to 20, like what are you, what are you even doing? You, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you don't have to preach it, but you got to talk about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. So we will. So we will do that. Yeah. But first... A word of introduction. Okay, so can you orient us a little bit? Where in scripture are we? Where where <laughs> history are we? What yeah. what do we need to know? Like I feel like we're just we we kind of left the the big long books and now we're kind of floating. Yeah. yeah, there's always sort of a disorienting jump uh in the fall when we go from the narrative texts, which we were mm-hmm. in all the way up until now. We're, now we're jumping into the prophetic texts, and we're going to be in the prophetic texts all the way through uh, through Advent or somewhere thereabouts. I think we jump actually into the New Testament before Christmas. But anyway, we'll talk about that another day. Uh, so last time when we talked, we were in the period of the kings. The kingdom had split north and south, Israel and Judah. And we were talking about the prophet Elijah, who was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel in the middle of the ninth century. And of course, the problem in the biblical text, the problem with the northern kingdom of Israel is that, I mean, basically is that Jerusalem isn't there. Jerusalem is in the south. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in the biblical context, the only legitimate place to worship is in Jerusalem in the south. And so from the very beginning, The northern kingdom of Israel is kind of this idolatrous, apostate place, and all their sanctuaries are, you know, uh, illegitimate sanctuaries, according to the biblical text. Mm -hmm. So that's where we are. Amos is a prophet in the northern kingdom, although it seems, as we'll see in a minute, that he's actually from the southern kingdom in Tekoa. And so he's sort of, in an interesting way, he's prophesying to a people that are closely related to him, but they're not his actual people. He's a Judahite and he's talking to Israelites. And we don't know exactly when, I mean, we know exactly when (laughs) Amos is prophesying. It's two years before the earthquake, uh, as we'll see in just a minute, but we don't know Mm -hmm. exactly when the earthquake was. Right. But as near as we can tell, we probably should date Amos to the first half of the eighth century. That is somewhere between, say, 750 and 7, I don't know, 780. 
Mm-hmm. And you'll see mm-hmm. various people place that in, in different moments in the reign of King Jeroboam. And so Israel at this moment is a fairly substantial kingdom. Assyria has not quite come onto the scene yet as a power, which is going to happen in just a minute, uh, like next week. So right now, Israel kind of is the, they're sort of in charge of themselves. And so uh, Amos is concerned with some of the ways, as we'll see, that Israel is practicing both religion and also with its sort of social ethics. Yeah. What else would you say about Amos by way of orientation? What I would say is that to your point earlier, every time you say Amos, you know when someone says your name and you get this little like zing of attention? <laughs> yeah. Every time you get, yeah, every time you said Amos, I was like, what? Oh, wait, you're not talking about me. <laughs> I thought you looked a little jumpy. I did not yeah. actually prophesy in that eighth century. No, I yeah. did not. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I, I mean, I think that's, um, I don't think I have anything to add to that introduction, Bobby. I know. I always am like, what about this little thing? I no, learned I from that, our friend Brent really Strawn, who was on the podcast on our special episode. He thinks about the prophets in terms of the little Dr. Seuss books, the the Lorax. Yeah. And to me, like every time I teach Amos at Hendrix, I teach with the Lorax. And so when I, whenever I picture Amos, it's like the Lorax going, well, I speak for the trees. <laughs> and, it, and it makes me laugh. <laughs> That's good. Well, if you need a, a children's program for um, for the this week, maybe reading the Lorax. <laughs> yeah. Would make a good one. I speak for the trees. Yeah. The other um, big transition for me that we'll we'll dive into just right, right, right quick, is we're moving into poetry, which always Ooh, feels yeah. um, it. I almost texted you earlier this week while I was preparing it, and I was like, "Man, poetry." It's, which I love poetry. It just it you you have to slow down. Yeah, slow your roll. Whatever right. you can do to slow down, because you know it's easy to skim a text and try to get the plot points. Yeah, but the plot points aren't going to cut it for you. Reading texts like this, so yeah, we'll do our best to slow you down wherever we can. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so we are picking up in chapter one, just verses one to two is our first little chunk. The words of Amos, a sheep breeder from Tekoa, who prophesied concerning Israel in the reigns of kings Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He proclaimed, The Lord roars from Zion, shouts aloud from Jerusalem, and the pastures of the shepherds shall languish, and the summit of Carmel shall wither. Uh. I'm actually impressed with the biblical text um, in terms of how much of, you know, you just gave us this whole background. A lot of that is really just crammed up in that first verse. Yeah, Williamson, you could have just read verse one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's right. Well, but then we would have had to stop and say like, wait, what does, you know, what does all this mean? But they really, they do a pretty good job giving us, uh, giving us some, some background here. Um, You talked about Tekoa and its location. It's near, yeah, yeah Tekoa is in the southern kingdom, kind of near Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Some people have tried to make the case that there's a Tekoa in the north. And so, but huh. I, there's not a real good case to make, if you ask me. And so I think the most straightforward understanding is 
that Amos is a prophet from nearby Jerusalem, and he's now in Israel prophesying concerning Israel. Yeah. Do you know anything about sheep breeding, Bobby? I know very little (laughs) about sheep breeding. You know, like, I know a little bit about the birds and the bees and whatnot, (laughs) but beyond the, like, most general idea about how sheep breed, um, (laughs) like, if I had to breed two sheep, I would just put them in a room together. Put on some romantic Play a little, like, Al Green or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess my question is really... You know, I've I've grown accustomed to someone being a shepherd, right? Mm. Like that's your sort of typical job. But it's not a shepherd, it's a sheep breeder. So yeah. I'm wondering if that's just, you know, that was just his job and there's not much to make of it or if there's there's something we should pull out from it yeah. contextually. Yeah, that's such an interesting question. We we learn a little bit more bio- biographically about Amos in chapter 7 and there mm. he's also said to be a dresser of sycamore trees. <laughs> which I love the way that's phrased because it's like he has little clothes that he goes out and that's what it sounds <laughs> like. like, puts him <laughs> like here's a little bow tie for you, sycamore tree. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, most people, I mean, you kind of have this popular vision of Amos as like this kind of scraggly bearded fellow, or at least I do, like standing on the street corner with a megaphone and yelling. But the case I think is better that Amos is actually a person of some financial means like he's not the shepherd he's the guy who owns the sheep you know he's the orchard owner and so to me that has been an important shift in the way that I read Amos not so much as a you know a scraggly outsider but as a person of some I mean he's invested in the system in his own in his own kind of way and yet he's sort of proclaiming against it I actually I I love that nuance in part because you know, Amos, like a lot of the really strongly worded prophetic texts, it's just really easy to say, like, they're the bad guys yeah. and here are the good guys or or maybe there are no good guys, you know, but to sort of see the, the prophet really standing against the people being prophesied to. And it's not that that isn't the case to, to a, you know, to a considerable degree yeah. in Amos, but I think any way that we can make that a little more complicated— and just, you know, to say that he yeah. he did benefit from these systems that he yeah. is is pointing to the problems yeah. within. To me, that's really, I find that really grounding. I think that's important. And I, and I think when we get into some of the stuff in chapter five, that'll come into focus in an, in an interesting kind of way. Yeah. Do you want to say anything about this earthquake? No, I mean, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is this is a fairly precise it's really precise. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And presumably this earthquake was something that people knew what what it was, right? Yeah. So we don't have exact access to when that earthquake was, although we do have some records of some seismic activities in the middle of the 8th century. But presumably the people that he's writing to would have been like, oh, yeah, the earthquake, you know? Right. Right. The other thing about this is, you know, we've been in a world of t- texts up until now that the dating of those texts is very difficult. I mean, you know yeah. how it is. People date Genesis anywhere from like the time of Solomon mm-hmm. to like the Greek period. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And many, many people now date it after the exile. So when you say, when was this written? You're like, well, somewhere in this like 800 year period. Yeah. Amos is clear, right? We know what kings there were. We, if we knew when the earthquake was, we would know exactly when he was writing. And so this text is reliably, I think, at least 
a version of it anyway, reliably dated to the 8th century, which kind of interestingly makes it the earliest dateable biblical text that we have. Like, if you want a firm footing in dating biblical texts, Amos, roughly 750, that's about as as firm as you're going to get on the early side. I love that. You know, I'm a little bit embarrassed about my first response reading that, but I'll tell you what it is anyway, because why not embarrass yourself on a podcast? While I certainly know that the other texts we've been reading are are harder to date and yeah. you know especially texts from the Torah are really hard to date it's it's almost like it's so hard to date them that i kind of forget yeah <laughs> that i like i kind of forget that they're not just written down like right around the time that it happened yeah. so even having this time stamp here where it's like 2 years before the earthquake and clearly the earthquake had already happened so like it's 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 just clear the text itself is saying I am I am providing quotations from something or trying to provide yeah. quotations from something that happened many years ago. Mm-hmm. For me, it was just sort of like a, a little reminder that, I don't know, that, that, these, that these traditions are, they travel orally for a long time. Yeah. Um, for varying amounts of time, but at least a few years yeah. <laughs> before they're written down. And that, I don't know, it's just a helpful, helpful corrective. You're making me. an important distinction there that I was not making. Uh, and I, that's I, I, super valuable because you're right. Like they're saying, remember the earthquake. That's when this was spoken, which means whoever's writing it is writing it at some yeah. distance, near yeah. enough that they can remember the earthquake, but far enough that they have to remind you about the earthquake. So when I said it's the earliest written biblical text, I think you could actually quibble with that, rightly so, that the, the words that are recorded are the earliest words that we know when they were recorded but we don't yeah. actually know when it was written. That, that's actually really helpful. There is also a theological interpretation of the earthquake that could be possible here. And I don't even know what, what mm-hmm. I think about this. <laughs> but like Amos is saying some stuff. And in the next very next verse, which you read, God is roaring from Zion. And, mm-hmm. and like, that's not a mm-hmm. nice image, right? That's a no. threatening image. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then so one could read this as like, look, y'all, two years after he said this, earthquake. <laughs> right. And so you yes. can read that as kind of a prophecy fulfillment thing. Yes. I don't know whether we should read it that way. Yes. Maybe it's just a timestamp, but maybe it's also a like, I told you, you know, or Amos told you. I, I mean, yeah. it's, yeah, I think it's hard not to see that little bit of a foreboding mm-hmm. possibility in there. Yeah. If it was two years after the earthquake, it would have a totally different <laughs> feel yes. to it than two years before yes. the earthquake. Mm. Yes. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Okay, I have one more um, clarifying question for you, and then we can get into some of the poetry of verse two. Yeah. I think you kind of covered this in your introductory remarks, but I just want to underscore it here because it is so confusing that Israel is the name of the people Israel and Israel is the name of the northern kingdom of Israel. Yeah. You know, once we're in the divided monarchy. So when it says in verse one that Amos prophesied concerning Israel. Yeah. You read that as Israel, the northern kingdom, not Israel, the people of Israel. If you read the rest of the book of Amos, I think it becomes clear enough. It's set in Bethel at the fall festival, mm-hmm. and all, almost all the prophecies are located in about northern places. So yeah, so I think this is the geographic region, the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel. Great. You're right, though. It's super confusing. It's and so then the confusing. southern Why kingdom, Judah. Why couldn't they Judah, just have another name? I know. <laughs> yeah. Why? 
They continue to call themselves Israel. Yes. And so it, it is quite confusing. But I think that there's very little dispute as far as I know about this is a southern yeah. prophet prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel about the northern kingdom of Israel. I, I think that's pretty well established. Great. I love things that are well established. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So then we move into verse two. Yeah. That was a long time on verse one. What? Verse two is so weird because it's like that we have the introduction and then the prophecy itself, the like, thus saith the Lord, begins, did you like that Amos voice? Begins in chapter, it begins in verse three. Yeah. What is verse two? Like, yeah. He proclaimed, Amos proclaimed. Yeah. These introductory comments. I don't know. Can you like, how does, how does this affect how we read the rest of it? How do you understand this verse fitting in? Yeah. That's such an interesting question. I had not put it to myself in quite that way. But I do think that verse two is sort of like Amos, like it's in the mouth of Amos setting the stage for what God yeah. is about to say in the rest of the book. So it's mm-hmm. like the prologue to the prophecy. And it is establishing a tone for sure, <laughs> right? Like God is roaring. And so when in yeah. verse three, it says, thus says the Lord, like you don't hear that as like a still small voice. You hear that as like a, a lion uh, roaring yes. at you. Yes. So I think that it's meant to sort of contextualize, like God is A, in Zion, that is Jerusalem, and God is an angry cat, <laughs> right? Um, and... <laughs> Yeah. Then, then here we go. Here's what the Lord roars. And now, now you're in the rest of the book. What would you yeah. say about that question, about what is verse two? No, I mean, I, 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 think that's, I think that's right. It gives you sort of, it sets the tone and gives you some, I don't know, some, some starting place. Like, <laughs> I feel like it's when you like come home from somewhere and before you get into the house, your sibling says like, mom's mad. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just so you know, yeah. whatever's happening in there, mom's mad. Yeah. I wonder about the choice of roaring, like the lion imagery yeah. in particular, which, I mean, was relatively common in the ancient Near East, no? Like, this is not a, a novel way of thinking of a deity. Yeah, I think that's right. But I wonder if there's any... Like, I have the phrase, the lion of Judah in my head. Like, yeah. a lion is being specifically associated with Judah. Yeah. The tribe Judah, for which the southern kingdom is, yeah. is named. And then the placement of God from, you know, the lion is shouting out from Jerusalem. Yeah. Like, from the, the center of the southern kingdom, which does, I think, fits in an important way with what you were saying about like, this is really someone from the Southern Kingdom who's talking to the people in the Northern Kingdom. And it's clearly situating God within the Southern Kingdom. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's so important to say, like you all in the North think you're worshiping the God of Israel. But in fact, the God of Israel is in Judah, in Jerusalem, in the temple. Yeah. And so when you go to Bethel and when you go to Gilgal, like you are doing something other than worshiping God the way God is meant to be worshiped. So just that little bit about God roars from Zion, God roars from Jerusalem is very mm-hmm. much a claim on where God is and who mm-hmm. God's like people are, at least the 
the center of God's commitment is right there in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. not up here where where uh, Jeroboam is. Yeah. Yeah. And God is pissed. <laughs> God is so, so <laughs> unhappy. When it moves to this, the second part of verse two, mm. and the pastures of the shepherds shall languish and the summit of Carmel shall wither. Yeah. Something about that, just the, I don't know, the poetry of it, even in English, I find very, gosh, what's the word? I don't know. It's the fact that those two lines start with and. Oh. (laughs) See what poetry does to me? It makes me look at the word and. Yeah. Do you read that as a, it is, the, the roar causes the pastures to languish? Like what? what it, how do you see the relationship between the the Lord roaring and the pastures languishing? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And in the, in the NRSV, which I'm reading, there's not an and there, but in the Hebrew oh. there is. Yeah, but Hebrew puts ands all over the place. Hebrew I mean. does put ands all over the place, <laughs> and they can mean anything. Like they can mean yes. and or but or yes. therefore or you know yes. like the yes. like exactly. And the intent of the connection is not clear. So in the beauty in the way that in the way that poetry is both beautiful and frustrating, I think this is open to some interpretation. Although in poetic texts, the the and is not as regular as it is in the narrative. Mm-hmm. And so the mm-hmm. fact that it is there might actually be significant. Whatever you want to do with that, my reading of this is these are causally connected for sure. Yeah. God roars and things wither. Like this, this is... Uh, there's a judgment in this roar and it has effect. Like it's not yeah. just God is mad, but when God is mad, things happen and they are and they are not good things for you. Yeah. Yeah. Do you read that similarly? I think I think that's probably right. I think I'm just struck by the sort of the forceful language, like the power of the Lord roars from Zion, shouts from Shouts aloud from Jerusalem, the way that that couplet is so like powerful and big. And then I just feel this like, I feel the next couplet is like quiet in the pastures of the shepherds shall languish. And that, I don't know, this like juxtaposition, but I, I don't know how much I'm just, you know. That, that's the, again, the beauty and the frustration of poetry is to do whatever you can to let it stir what it stirs in you. And um, yeah. you never quite know. In the NRSV, that word language that you're reading is translated wither. Hebrew is aval, mm-hmm. which has a sense of dryness, but I think it could also, I don't actually know what language means. <laughs> like, what to me, is language that, is just kind of like goes limp or something. What verb does the NRSV have for what happens to the summit of Carmel? So the pastures of the shepherds wither and the top of Carmel dries up in the NRSV. Ah, okay. My pastures languish in the summit withers but yeah uh, it's we're in that in that yeah and we should probably say uh that one of the characteristics of hebrew poetry is parallelism yes as you well know and that we see it twice here like the lord roars from zion basically means the same thing as utters his voice from jerusalem yeah so that's therein lies the parallel but they do kind of different things the same is true with the shepherd with the pastures withering and the top of carmel drying those are saying a similar thing but Mm-hmm. In related language, but they sort of mm-hmm. move differently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sort of like fills out your image or sometimes pushes it one step farther or yeah. something like that. But yeah. Yeah. As we're talking about this, I'm reading like to me, 
you know, I don't think it's that God thought, hey, I'm going to roar and make everything dry up, right? I think it's that like yeah. God's hot roar breath <laughs> causes <laughs> things to dry, right? Like anger in Hebrew, as you know, is like, well, I mean, in English too, but it's like heat coming out your nose. Yeah. So I think when God roars, it's just that roar is hot and everything everything withers. Yeah. I don't think it's like God's like, poof, you're gonna, I'm going to wither your fields. But just like this is the effect of what of God's roar. Interesting. Yeah, no, I think that I think that makes sense. So it is causal, but not it's more like a, a statement of God's power. Yeah. In some way. I think that's right. God's anger causes things to dry up. Yeah. But it's not that not the purpose of the roar, but it's the effect yeah. of the roar. Mm-hmm. Not yet anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you read this word Carmel could be a place in the Northern Kingdom? Yeah. Or it could just mean like farmland, orchard, yeah. something like that. I want to guess. I'm going to guess what Bobby thinks. Okay. You tell me if I'm right. I'm going to guess that you think it is the place in the Northern Kingdom. Am I right? Well, yes. Yes. Here's what I was actually going to say, which is what okay. I say a lot, which is I think both of those things are, tr- are right. Yeah. Um, so no matter what you said, you were going to be right. But the reason that. that reason that the place Carmel is called Carmel is because it is full of vineyards and rich, you know, past, yeah. pastoral land. It's sort of on the western side of Israel near the Mediterranean coast. It's a really rich area. And so, yeah, so I think what's being said there is this region, which is known for its vineyards and for its productivity, is withering. And so there is a, there is an economic side to what has happened here. It's not just that, oh, some plants dried up. It's like yeah. your livelihood just got destroyed. So I don't know if it, I mean, I don't know quite what the parallel is, like Napa Valley or somewhere, you know, yeah. like somewhere yeah. that's known for its, for its abundant uh, agricultural production. That's what's dried up. That's important. Yeah. It's an important additional piece. All right, I'm kind of wanting to get into the the meaty stuff in chapter five, but is there anything else that you want to draw out of this introduction? I think we have covered more about those two verses than I thought we could possibly <laughs> cover. Ever thought about in your life? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, every little bit of it was just interesting. I've been hanging on, <laughs> hanging on her every word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Hello, fellow Bible worms. My name is Amy Marie Epp. I'm a pastor at Seattle Mennonite Church in Seattle, Washington. I support Bible Worm at the early worm level, $8 a month, and I consider that professional budget dollars very well spent. What I especially love about being a patron at this level is having access to those podcast episodes a week early, since I'm often working that far ahead on sermons or on worship prep. Also, by the way, I love the sticker, which I put on my water bottle immediately. Amy and Bobby's insight and wisdom have become an invaluable resource for me. I look forward every week to hearing them chew through that biblical text together with curiosity and with humor. It feels like I'm a part of the conversation. That's why I wanted to support them in making Bible Worm possible. It still feels like a gift each week to have that Patreon episode land in my inbox. I hope all of you who are listening will also consider becoming patrons. And now, back to this week's episode.
Okay, so we are moving over to chapter five and picking up in verse 14. Yeah. Seek good and not evil that you may live and that the Lord, the God of hosts, may truly be with you as you think. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Yeah. You were saying before we started, we we considered adding a couple verses before this to give yeah. a little more context. Because if you yeah. just read this, like one of the questions I wrote in the margin like, is, it, is, is it really so easy as that? Like, seek good and not evil. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That sounds all right. I don't know. Yeah. That's like a pretty general yeah. instruction. Can you offer any sort of additional context about what, what if there's something more specific Amos is getting at here? Yeah, no, I think the, the, the point you're making is so important because this feels real abstract when you just start right here and sort of like, yeah. be a good person, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I think it's instructive to back up in chapter five a little bit. I mean, or to just go back and read Amos, but if you just back up a couple verses in verse 10, you get uh, some discussion about they despise people who are judging in the gate, right? So there's a perversion of justice here. The, the city gate was a place where cases were tried. Uh, and so there's a perversion of justice here. In verse 11, you trample the poor and take away from them the levies of grain. So there is some sort of economic deprivation here. People are controlling mm-hmm. food supply in ways that are enriching some and impoverishing others. So as you start to as you start to read through there, you start to get the sense that what Amos is talking about is something related to the ideas in the book of Deuteronomy, I think, which is that there ought to be an economic distribution so that the wealthy and the poor are all living like the poorest of the poor are living well enough. Maybe there are some people yeah. who have more than others, but everybody has enough, nobody has ridiculous amounts. Yeah. And the problem here is that the people who actually have access to wealth are using it in exploitative ways. They're hoarding ways. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it goes, this goes back to the manna story, right? And we talked about that when we were in Exodus 16 about the tendency mm-hmm. that God is testing out in that story of people to gather more than they need. And did they pass the test or not? We didn't, we didn't know in that one. But here, yeah. here they have not passed the test. And so now there are, there are repercussions. Yeah. Yeah. So that seek good and not evil I think, I mean, this might be a little bit simplistic, but one way of reading it is do economic justice. Stop exploiting people. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's harder than (laughs) be a nice person. That is, yeah, yeah. That is harder than be a nice person. I have a, there's a note in my study Bible that, that pulls out these verses in particular as being the sort of rallying cry of ethical monotheism. Mm-hmm. Where you, you know, where basically your, your, the requirement of your religion is be a good person. That's it. Yeah. You know, like that is, that is what is asked of us. And I don't think we're going to, you know, so I just had this question running through my head. Like, is that really Amos's call or is it that Amos is really in response to a culture that has gone so far away from ethics and so far in the direction of a super overabundance of attention to ritual or really is Amos just interested in, in ethical monotheism? Yeah. So, so 
if I understand, I just want to make sure I understood what you were after, which is, is, is the question like being, doing justice is the beginning and the end of what it yeah. means to be a religious person? Yeah. 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 Right. Is that the entirety of it or is yeah. it an important part of it? Yeah. You know, I think that's exactly the right question to be asking about this text. And I, I think we will want, we, maybe we'll want to hang on to that as like a framework yeah, for reading right. part of the, uh, the rest of it. But I think it's worth holding on to that idea because it's so contrary to the way religion, at least in the Christian tradition in the U.S., is often talked about, which is that it has n- nothing to do with economic justice and that it's all about worship. And so to, to put the case hard the other direction and to say, no, no, it's not about worship at all. Mm-hmm. It's just about economic justice. That puts such a fine point on it. I think it's worth sitting with that, even if we decide we want to nuance it or correct it later. I think it's yeah. worth sitting with the possibility yeah. that all that matters is the way that people are treated. Yeah. No, I think that's, yes. It's all, it's all with sitting with, sitting with the nuance of the question. Yeah. It seems like by doing these things, by, you know, hating evil and loving good, you are opening the door for, a possi- for the possibility of a relationship with God, for God yeah. being with you. Yeah. But you're not ensuring it. Right. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's so is that, I mean, that, is that, that's how you read it also? Yeah, that you're focused on that last phrasing there. It may be that the Lord will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Like, it's not that the Lord... If you do this, then the Lord will be. It's that do all of this and maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think you're reading that correctly. I'm curious what you. Th- I'm curious what you'd think about that. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I almost want to hold it in the in conjunction with the question I just asked about ethical monotheism. Like yeah. maybe maybe living a just life is sort of a prerequisite to anything else. Yeah. But it doesn't guarantee it. Or maybe it's an indication that, like, you still don't get to control God. Like, God's not a robot. You can't. (laughs) There's no specific thing you can do that requires God to respond in a particular way. Yeah. I think that's right. I really really love that. And so there's a couple things there. One is things are not okay with God right now. Like, the fact that you're saying maybe he'll be gracious means God is not in the mood to be gracious given what you are currently doing. Right. So there is clear judgment in view. And then I love what you're saying, like the, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Proverbs, this kind of theology is open, as you know, to manipulation. Yeah. Like the uh, God's not a robot. The way I talk about it in my classes is God is not a heavenly gumball machine where, you know, you Ooh, put in your quarter, nice. of, your quarter <laughs> of justice and you get back your gumball of reward or whatever. Yeah. That there are certain things that you do that we know that God is predisposed to desire and appreciate and respond to those things. But I think you're exactly right. You cannot demand that God give you what you, you know, give you what you think you deserve because you're doing all the things. I think that's right. 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 God is not manipulable, but God has said God values certain things. And so if we do those certain things, then there ought to be a good hope for us. Right. It seems like you'd tip the scales in our favor. Yeah. Yeah. They're definitely tipped not not in your favor at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Those words good and evil there, I think maybe we just, I just already said this, but the words good and evil there, I think we ought to read, not just like be nice, but I think we ought to read them in light of that conversation about economic justice. Like mm. good is doing right by other people. 
evil is not doing justice. Yeah. Yeah. I th- and I think that makes a lot of sense. Again, if we think of this as, you know, that verse 14 and 15 sort of being in parallel to each other and sort of elucidating yeah. each, yeah. each elucidates the other a little bit. The fact that 15 is more specific, established justice in the gate, I think affirms, you know, puts the little like check mark emoji on your, <laughs> yeah. on your statement just now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a particularity about it. Should we see what happens next? Is there anything you want to add from? No, let's, 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 let's see what happens. Let's push ahead. Okay, so we're going to skip just two verses and pick up at verse 18. Ah, you who wish for the day of the Lord, why should you want the day of the Lord? It shall be darkness, not light, as if a man should run from a lion and be attacked by a bear, or if he got indoors, should lean his hand on the wall and be bitten by a snake. Surely the day of the Lord shall be. What? I said I love that. (laughs) Surely the day of the Lord shall be not light, but darkness, blackest night. Sorry, you were trying to be all serious, and I was giggling at there being a snake in the wall. No, that's. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is a very, like, it's a very nightmarish. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine like you're running from a bear and then you get attacked by a lion and you finally <laughs> yeah. get inside the little like woodshed. It's like a horror movie. <laughs> no, it totally is. And you is. lean your hand against the wall yeah. and you're bitten by a snake. Yeah. You really could make a movie out of this. <laughs> you totally it's could. Yeah, it's bad. like you ran into the Chainsaw Massacre's guy's you t- lair. <laughs> you yeah. totally did. <laughs> you totally. If they had chainsaws in the day of Amos, that's what would have happened in here. <laughs> yeah. Shoo, yeah. I made it inside. Oh, no, there's a snake in the wall. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's a kind of a clunky image. Like it makes me laugh both because it's so like on point about like you think you're in safety, but you're really in danger. And also it's it's kind of clunky. Like you're running from a lion, there's a bear, and then there's a snake in the wall. Like, I don't know. Does not rise (laughs) to the like poetic eloquence of which Amos is capable. But it makes a point. It makes a point. It does. It it does make a point. Yes. It does make a point. Will you Introduce us to the idea of the day of the Lord. Like, yeah. what is Amos referring to yeah. in his time? As far as we know, this is the earliest instance of anyone talking about the day of the Lord in a written oh. text that has been preserved. So this idea of the day of the Lord becomes really important in later biblical texts. And it, as you know, it gets developed uh, in Joel and, and elsewhere, and ev- eventuates in kind of this apocalyptic idea that God's coming back and is going to do some stuff. In the time of Amos, it seems like the day of the Lord, I mean, he says in the beginning, why do you look forward to the day of the Lord? It's mm-hmm. darkness, not light. Mm-hmm. So it seems like Amos is playing with a tradition in which the day of the Lord was seen as a good thing, right? It's when God comes back, it's going to be so good for us. It's going to be, it's going to be a great day. And Amos is saying, you think it's going to be a great day, but it is going to, it is not going to be good for you. And so he's taken what people are sort of resting in this idea that God's going to come and, you know, set things right, take vengeance on our enemies. And he's saying, in fact, in order to set things right, God's going to take vengeance on you. Mm-hmm. And so there is a, a, a reversal here that is yeah. pretty, pretty sharp. Yeah. What else would you say yeah. about that, about that idea? Well, you know, as you were talking it sort of occurred to me that if they were looking forward to the day of the Lord, 
even though, you know, maybe they should have realized that they were really acting in ways that are, yeah. that totally go against. It's not yeah. like these are, the idea of being just <laughs> is yeah. new to Amos. Like, yeah. they should have been doing this all along. Yeah. But it underscores for me that they really are oblivious to yes. how far off the path they are. Yes. They're not like, ha ha, we're getting away with something. And <laughs> yeah. like, you know, God will never know. Like, they think they're good. Yeah. Amy, that's so important. I love the way you said that. That's so important. So Amos is talking to people who think they're totally doing the right thing, that God's on their side, it's going to be awesome, and then when God shows up, it turns out. And that they should have known. Right, yeah. They, they should have known. known. They definitely they should know. have known, but they don't know. And I feel like that's a whole category in the universe. Like, there's yeah. people who know what's right and don't do it. Yeah. And then there's people who who don't know what's right. And then there's people yeah. who, like, there's a point at which, like, yeah, but you should have known. Yeah. <laughs> it was in the email, guys. It was in the email. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that, Amy. And I think that helps a lot in terms of putting this passage, like, in focus for us or for at least for me. Yeah. Instead of saying, like, oh, there are some terrible people out there and they're going to get what's coming to them. It's that there are some oblivious people out there who think they're doing right, but in fact are doing wrong. And if they were paying attention, they would know. And then I think, oh, am I one of those people? Is my community one of those communities? And that totally shifts the way that I hear this as a, as a reader, as a listener. And I think, and I've really learned this from studying with you, that is so much of what our job is reading the prophetic texts, yeah. is not to ever step into the position of like, I'm the prophet. Look at yeah. those terrible people. No. Yeah. <laughs> you are never the prophet. We are never the prophet in this. We are receiving the message. I think that's exactly right. And especially if the we in that sentence is you and me being mm-hmm. who we are positioned mm-hmm. where we are positioned. Yes. Being yes. people of some yes. power and privilege and prestige and financial you know, opportunity mm-hmm. in the world. I do think there are people who can read this text and be like, oh, no, this is not about us. This is about you. Bible word people, you know. (laughs) Yes. So when the poor read this text, I think they are fully, fully able to read it as saying like, you guys are going to get what's coming to you. But when we read it, I think we do best to do what you're saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's, I appreciate that differentiation. That is true and real. So I am picking up then in verse 21. And I'm reading through to 24. Okay, picking up in verse 21. I loathe, I spurn your festivals. I am not appeased by your solemn assemblies. If you offer me burnt offerings or your meal offerings, I will not accept them. I will pay no heed to your gift of fatlings. Spare me the sound of your hymns and let me not hear the music of your lutes. But let justice well up like water righteousness like an unfailing stream. Mm. I was so nervous I was going to like mess up the words in that last part. Like in my head, I was like, what if I say unflailing stream? Like, (laughs) yeah, ruin something. Yeah, the stream is not flailing. No. The NRSV, I love the NRSV translation. Let justice roll down like waters Mm. and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Just that image of rolling down. Mm Mm-hmm captures something to me that uh, it's like there is such an abundance of justice mm-hmm. that it just like overflows and rolls and comes, you know, I, uh, 
I didn't quite get the same thing out of the welling up. The welling up. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I hear that. And I, I would let's let's just sit with that metaphor, that uh. language a little more. I mean, one of what why water? Like what qualities do you associate with water? Yeah. Let's play a free association game. <laughs> Wetness. Why why? Oh, <laughs> that's deep. <laughs> yeah. Wetness. Yeah. I was with a friend of mine and her kid who was in middle school was like, is water wet? Or is water the thing that conveys the property of wetness? And I was like, well, that's actually, that's an interesting question. I don't know. Anyway, that's probably not what Amos had in mind. But I think that's an interesting question. Is water wet? Is, yeah. And yeah. sometimes you say that like, this is obviously true. Like, is water wet? And you're like, no, actually, water's not wet. But the things that water touches. Anywho, okay. And back to Amos. What do you do with that image of overflowing water? I mean, okay, so water to me is, I mean, it's tremendously powerful. It's like this, Mm. it has the potential to be this. I mean, it's a force of nature, and it has the potential to be overwhelming in its power, either in its quantity, you know, or its pace. Yeah, but it also has, can be very tranquil. Like water yeah. can kill you or it can sustain you. Yeah. Water, you know, it's it's a little unpredictable. We can't, it's hard to control what water does. Yeah. So there's like, there. I don't know, there there can sometimes be a little bit of a chaotic element about it. But I mean, I agree with you. I, I love that roll down, mm-hmm. that water roll down. So if you picture water rolling down, it's like it can't be stopped. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's um, abundant, certainly. And there, I mean, there's a life-giving element of it, but there's also like a raw power about it. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. And it's rolling down and then it's ever flowing. And so this is not still mm-hmm. water. This is not mm-hmm. you lead me beside the still waters. Like this mm-hmm. is, there is some energy here. My head goes to a couple places. I, mm. I love what you're saying. That one is from a later text, which is in Ezekiel 47, where the uh, river of life comes flowing out of the temple and spreads across the land, and it brings forth, mm. you know, all these trees of life that if you eat from them, they sustain your life, and all the trees grow, and the animals gather, and it's, you know, that beautiful idea. Where the water is the source of life. And so here, justice mm-hmm. is the source of water, which is mm-hmm. the source of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other place that my head goes is back to the first part of this text that we read today, back in, in Amos 1, where Carmel dried up and the mm. pastures withered. And this is, this is an antidote to that, right? If you do justice, there will be water, right? The, the, yeah. the economic deprivation that you're experiencing all that is required is that you do justice and then the land will produce. Which is kind of an interesting idea, right? If the people are trying to hoard wealth, they're ultimately causing the, the land to dry up. Yeah. But if they would do justice, which means to make sure everyone is provided for, the land would be more abundant. So hoarding I is actually counterproductive. That. Yeah. 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 Which, I mean, still today. Right. Yep. I love the juxtaposition of those two things because the first one, the idea of water flowing from the temple, like water flowing from Jerusalem, 
yeah, it's exactly parallel to the idea that this, you know, lion god who is roaring from Jerusalem is drying up the land in anger. And and the water flowing will, will counteract that. That's beautiful. And it really takes the idea of, I mean, it's got such a pragmatic spin to it, you know, like mm-hmm. it, it sort of takes the idea of justice out of the like, you should do that because you should do it. Like it's, yeah, it takes it out of the like, do good for the sake of doing good, which yeah. I'm not against doing good for the sake of doing good. But this is saying like, this is how the whole system was built. Like yeah. you have to work with the system and it is to your own detriment yeah. ultimately if you don't, and how do you not see that it is to your own detriment? You be selfish in your selfish interest. Yeah. Be selfish, but don't be stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I love, I love the way you say that. And, you know, in my head, it goes back to the, the Exodus 16 text again and that idea of manna. And the, there is plenty. If only you will live in God's economy the way God intends you to live in God's economy, there yeah. is plenty. Yeah. It, it is the hoarding that causes the problem. Mm-hmm. And so I love the way you said that at the end, like, okay, be selfish, right? <laughs> like, be selfish. You want more for yourself. So what do you do? You make sure there's enough for everybody. And then the whole community prospers. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a great system that God has right, set up. It's a up. great system, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is a system here. Yes, yeah. there is a system here. Yeah. One thing that I want to point out in this verse, although I'm not sure it's the most important thing, but we have a parallel here between justice and righteousness. Righteousness in in the Christian context, in North America anyway, has sort of come to seem like a purely spiritual, like I am, like righteous and pious have kind of come to be related. But this text is not doing that. This text, the Hebrew tzedakah, is in parallel to mishpat, so justice and righteousness are parallel. And righteousness means like right action. It's right action with a religious orientation, right? So you act rightly because you revere God. But it's not merely an inner attitude of like, I am righteous, I am pious. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Uh, it is like you do the right things. So it's, it's, it's a nuance different. Like it's, it's a nuance of justice, but these yeah. are not different things. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I, it's, a little, it's a little painful for me to read some of this, uh, the strong language about mm. worship. Oh, my goodness. Here. What is it, the, I, fir- the first verse, 21, in your translation? I loathe. Mm. I spurn your festivals. Yeah. NRSV is I hate, I despise, I take no delight. Um, loathe. I love, I love the, I mean, I don't love the loathing, but like, I think that translation. Yeah, I mean, I, f- I so feel cool. like God's like, I'm going to puke the next time yeah. you have a holiday to celebrate me. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do. That's exactly. That's, that like You it's, make me sick. Yeah. You make this is making me sick. This thing that you are exactly doing to, you know, to yes. bring to try to delight the Lord is making yes. me sick. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to our point sort of earlier, and, and maybe we've yeah. made it a couple different ways now, it's again, it's easy for all of us to read the text about like, well, yeah, that offering fatlings is really weird, and I'm glad that grosses out God. We should <laughs> yeah. say, like but yeah. that that's not the point here no. because then it goes on to spare me the sound of your hymns yeah. and let me not hear the music of your lute. The point is that any kind of worship that you do to yes. try to connect with me and celebrate me 
while all this other stuff is going on. Yeah. Is completely unacceptable. Amy, that's so important. And so to like to think in terms of our own religious communities, like what are the religious practices? Like these are just like you're saying. These, these are, are just the, the religious practices. Typical right? The problem is practices. not sacrifice. Yeah. The problem is that you are worshiping yeah. as the worship of God is this self-contained thing that happens yeah. for an hour or two, you yeah. know, in a particular space. And then you can go off and do your business and, yeah. and come back. So if you were going to transpose this into a Christian context, you would say something like, you know, for that line about the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon, you know, you would say something like your sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion, I will not accept. Like mm-hmm. that's the level of what we're talking about, which I think for a Christian audience might ring a little differently. Like you can, yeah. you can practice the Eucharist all you want, but I'm like, not only am I not accepting it, but like I hate it when you do that. Like it makes me sick. Yeah. That that you would continue to do these things. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. Stop singing to me. Stop baptizing people. Stop doing communion. Stop. Yeah. Right. All of those things. Do you think it's clear here, or maybe I'm projecting this, that it's like the reason these things upset God is because they are juxtaposed with this lack of justice in the world. It doesn't quite say that, but I really want it to. Well, this this was one of my concerns about the text limits given to us in the narrative lectionary. Although I would not be able to do it any better, I don't think, other than maybe going back and reading instead of just talking about maybe you would go back and read from verse 10 on, which does contextualize a little bit. Mm-hmm. Part of me wants to say like, just go back and read the rest of the book of Amos. Right? Like, it's not that um, long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I think within the context of the book of Amos, it is very clear that God is not saying, I don't like worship. Yeah. Right. God is saying, as you are saying, I don't want you to worship me while also carrying out injustice. If you got a pick, do justice, worship God, pick justice every time, man. Like, that's what I care about. Yeah. I think the ideal for Amos, Amos's vision of God is you do justice, then you worship. Mm -hmm. That is, those two things together, that's the dream, right? Then Mm -hmm. I do accept your offerings. Then I do love your hymns. Then I do accept your communion. But as long as there is injustice, I don't want any of that. It's a non-starter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 But I do think you're right that it's possible to miss that point reading this text the way we have it. And that would be unfortunate. It, yeah, I think it's something that can be taken out of context. And it's interesting to hear you speak from your context in the Christian world that I was, I don't know if I should say progressive Christian world, whatever, the Christian world where maybe there's a danger of people leaning so far into worship that they forget about, you know, some issues of economic justice. And certainly that happens in the in the progressive Jewish world as well, but there's also a whole arm of progressive Judaism that some people would describe as ethical monotheism. That's sort of an insulting way to go about it, but I I don't know. Yeah. But where this kind of thing is taken out of context as like, see, God doesn't want any religion. Yeah. God just wants you to do justice. Yeah. So, yeah, and con- context, context is king, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. No, I think that is, I think that is super important. This is not saying in all times and all places, God hates your songs. God, God hates might hate my hands. songs because like, <laughs> my songs are not that great, but you know, like in principle. Yeah. So this is, it. yeah. I think for that earlier conversation you were having, like, is justice enough? I think the answer is something like, if it's, if it's one or the other, yeah. then justice. Yeah. But the ideal mm-hmm. is both. Worship in the context of justice. Yeah. But yeah. The, it's what's clear is worship without justice, that's the worst of all the things. Right. That's, that's where you get, to me, what I can only read is disgust. Yeah. I think that's exactly from, right. From God. Like what the text says is worship without justice is worse than not worship without justice. <laughs> right? Like yeah. if you're not yes. doing justice and you're not worshiping me, that's bad. But it's not as bad as worshiping me while doing injustice. That's insulting. That's the worst of all the things. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a snake in a wall. (laughs) 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 A creepy woodshed. You escape the bear in a creepy woodshed. Only to find the wall is covered in snakes. Well, Bobby, we have come to that time. Where are you going to drop some wisdom on us for us modern folk? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm all about dropping the wisdom. Oh, <laughs> I really set you up well there. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Amos. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so to me, the keys to this text for somebody in a context like mine is that justice is the prerequisite for all relationship with God. And as you were saying, which I thought was so important, that people who think they are right with God are the ones that are in view here. So it is entirely possible that, that I or my community or whoever thinks we're doing all the right things, we're worshiping in all the right ways, we're doing pretty good, you know, God loves us. And in fact, we are making God want to puke. Like, <laughs> like there is some, like, that's a, like spending yeah. a little time sitting with that is kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. But the question is like, what are my justice practices? And like, if my justice practices are good, then everything else I'm doing is great. But if my justice practices are bad, everything else I'm doing is nauseating. Yeah. Like, and then the question is like, well, what does justice mean? And I, you know, I, there, that's a big question, but like, let's just go look at the manna story or let's look at the, Deuter- the book of Deuteronomy and we think about people being treated fairly and everybody having enough to make it through the day. And, you know, the poorest of the poor are still at a living wage. Like those are the kinds of justice practices. And, you know, I can speak for myself to say in that context, my justice practices are not great. And so like this text becomes then for me a call to do something better, right? It's not a call to stop worshiping, but it is a call to make sure that my worship is coupled with like justice that could be characterized as water rolling down and, you know, an ever flowing stream. Like there is an abundance of it. That's the bar. And I think for me, for most of us, Mm -hmm. there is more justice that could and should be mm-hmm. done. I don't know yeah. that that's, you know, like to me, that's sort of what this text kind of clearly says, but like, yeah. I think it's an important message that that's worth taking on board. Yeah. 
What do you, uh, what do you do with this text? I mean, I think you're exactly right. It is hard to say this better than Amos. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> did. Um, I think that, that where my mind goes is, you know, given that Amos is speaking to people who are not intending to do wrong. Yes. How do we have real conversations about mm. these things in our communities mm. without without tiptoeing around hard things? Yeah. But also without coming out so so hard that people have like an initial shame response and just sort of recoil. Uh, I mean, there is definitely yeah. a you know you make God want to puke is pretty like pretty <laughs> shameful, but you know yeah. might like you know, tone it down a little bit, but trying to figure out like the work of trying to figure out how to get this message out in a way that different people can really hear it and feel invited into it instead of Mm -hmm. ashamed in a way that will shut them down is, I I, I don't have an answer to it, but I feel like that's the, yeah, that's, that's the challenge to me of, of talking about this in community and in communities like my community and your community where, where many people are, are the folks that Amos would be talking to, you know? Yeah. It's, I don't know. I I don't, I don't have the right answer to it. How do you make people feel loved enough and wanted enough and also open to hearing that, that what we're doing isn't cutting it. Yeah. That's such an important question, Amy. And the tension there, I mean, uh, kind of a wooden way of characterizing it is the dif- the tension between the prophetic and the pastoral. Yeah. Yes. And you yes, know, yes. You are somebody who's located in a religious community as a leader on a daily basis. I'm a <laughs> college professor uh who like there's some there's some freedom to just drop some truth bombs when mm, you're when mm-hmm. you don't when you're not embedded in the community for which you are responsible. And so I, I really appreciate your raising that question. I think there is something helpful about that conversation we were having about the, the justice and the righteousness rolling down in ways mm-hmm. that enrich the whole community. Mm-hmm. And the way you said that was, it's like, it's fine to be selfish. <laughs> Just be selfish in a way that benefits the whole community. Like to me, there's something there. Like generosity begets generosity, yeah, uh, which is true and true to this text, and also is less harsh than like you're gonna get bit by a snake, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. But if we practice generosity, if we practice justice, like it's gonna make us all better. The community will thrive, right. and so we're not asking you to give up your thriving for someone else to thrive. What Amos is saying is if we make sure everyone thrives, then we all thrive. Right. Right. And maybe that has a little bit of a more gentle yeah. a gentle ring to it. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot this week for various reasons about the phrase we belong to each other. Mm, mm-hmm. And that I don't know, that came into my mind again as you were saying that. Yeah, yeah. The idea that someone else is thriving will will actually benefit you. It will. Yeah, it, it will. will. It'll make the whole system work better. Mm-hmm. But you have to you have to have faith in that. You have to believe in that. Mm-hmm. Oh, Amos, this was this was fun talking about Amos. It was fun talking about Amos. Yeah. And next week we are going to talk about Isaiah chapter nine. 
Yeah. Verses one through seven. It's a short text. I bet we're going to make it longer, Bobby. We do. <laughs> we can make some things long, though, can't we? <laughs> we can we, go on about things. Yeah. We have never made anything shorter than it needs to be, that's for sure. <laughs> True story. Well, I look forward to it. Thanks for another great conversation, and I will see you next week. All right, Amy. See you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us to keep the podcast going. Special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporter, Jane Rowe. Join us again next week when we will read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Until then, keep on digging.